0: All right, well, the children are preparing to leave with their leaders to give them some time together. And we're going to turn again, as I mentioned earlier, to Daniel chapter 8. So once again, we return to the book of Daniel. And we probably have maybe two more weeks into the book of Daniel in our series, Dissecting Daniel, and then we'll call that complete. That won't we'll maybe cover every chapter, but it's really hard in the prophetic portion to cover every chapter. But nonetheless, we do return to Daniel one more time. It is today in the eighth chapter. And today we look at the vision called the ram, and the goat. Now, before we do anything with the reading or elaborate from the ram and the goat and Daniel's second vision, recall from last Sunday, or if you weren't here, let me just update you a little bit about what happened into the seventh chapter because we moved, as I mentioned, into the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel, which is chapters seven through twelve. Chapters one through six gives you great illustrations of faithfulness from Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel chapter 7 changes a lot with the remainder of the book and is all prophetic. So last week in Daniel chapter 7, we read about this vision he received during the reign of Belshazzar, who was then the king of Babylon. Now remember that Belshazzar was the king of Babylon after the original king was Nebuchadnezzar. When we open the book of Daniel, you learn the king of Babylon, where Daniel and his friends have been taken to, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was king for quite some time, but when he died, Belshazzar became the king. Now, it's the same Belshazzar, if you know the book of Daniel, that in chapter 5 was having this huge party, and then when he was having this party, suddenly he saw a hand writing on the wall, which completely freaked him out, which probably would any of us if we see a handwriting on the wall. But Daniel was called forward to interpret the handwriting because no one else could do so. Daniel revealed then to King Belshazzar they would have his kingdom in due time, the Babylonian Empire as it was, to fall to the hands of the Medes and Persians. Which then introduced us, as it did happen, to Darius the Mede in chapter 6, which is known simply as Daniel and the Lion's Den. I'm moving through it pretty quickly. Which means all that then, as you come now to chapter 8, and Belshazzar being the king in 5, Darius in chapter 6, is all kind of backwards, which means that Daniel... Is not written in chronological order. And that shouldn't really deter us or be a bother to us on the, on the content of the Bible or of its faithfulness and truthfulness because a lot of the Bible is not written in chronological order. But doesn't change anything. As Sheila or any leader emphasizes with the children, the Bible is still absolute, it's still certain and positively absolutely true. It doesn't change anything even though it may not be written in chronological order. Now, having said that, then, it takes us back then to Daniel's vision in the previous chapter. Because it demonstrated in the previous chapter with the things we see unfolding with Daniel and his vision he was having with his weird-looking animal things, that the Word of God was still absolute, positive, true, and certain. It became our first application point. Regardless of society today, and what they may want to tell you in regards to God's word, it still is absolute, certain, and true. It does not change. It stands the test of time and is certain, it's true, and it's absolute. But I was thinking about that this week as we prepare for today and move into a new chapter. Now I thought we need to add something to what's happening now in Daniel's prophetic vision as we move into certain parts of it, because with the Bible being absolute, certain, and true, yes, that's right, but also Daniel is so precise. It is so accurate. As he received his prophecy in this particular portion years and years ago, it worked out so precisely as Daniel had received from God in his vision, as scholars, critical scholars, look upon it and say, there's no way Daniel could have known this. There's no way he could have received it because it worked out exactly like he said it was going to. And they suggest then that Daniel, or someone other than Daniel, wrote these things after all these events unfolded. I mean, it's remarkable, the accuracy you find in Daniel's vision. The mighty, powerful Babylonian kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar was overtaken surely, truly by the Medes and Persians in 539 B.C. You can check it out. It's history. is known. The Medo-Persian Empire would be conquered by Alexander the Great, which we'll elaborate upon today, was taken in 334 B.C. Greece was overcome then by the Roman Empire in 363 B.C. All that to say, it all happened exactly and precisely as Daniel predicted from the vision of the four beasts in last week's chapter 7. It is all precise, certain, and true. That is how God's word is. It all ties together. Daniel chapter 7 had these weird looking beasts that tie back to chapter 4 or chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It all begins to make sense and works out exactly as God intended. God is in control. Daniel received a vision, it worked out exactly. His word is absolute, certain, and true. So, with all that said, we may think then that well, with these four hideous-looking beasts, and weird as they were described in chapter 7, then maybe this history prophesied is, is come to an end. Is there anything left of the vision that Daniel needs to receive? And the answer is yes. There's more pertaining to the vision. So today we go into a second vision. It is not necessarily about the four kingdoms, we're elaborate just a moment, but it's really specific to two of the four. And we'll get to that just as well. And it involves a ram and a goat. So let's get to the text. We're in Daniel chapter 8. Stand with me if you're able to as we simply stand for the reading of the Word and honoring the Word. And just a comment before we do the reading is that we're going to jump in in chapter 8 to verse 15. There's 14 verses we're not going to read at this moment, but we're certainly going to refer to them because the first 14 verses actually tell us the vision. Verses 15 through 27, which is part of our reading, is the actual meaning of the vision. And of course, we'll elaborate in just a moment as well. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O oh son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of indignation, it refers to the point of time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold folks, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great. But not by his own power, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princesses. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evening and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. In verse 27, it says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Let's pray, Father. Lord, we certainly thank you, Lord, for the reading today, Lord, we just ask that you be with us now as we begin to explain this prophetic portion of Daniel. We pray, Lord, that, yes, this may be a lot of informational content, Lord, to be able to learn from this vision, but Lord, guide us and lead us and see how we can apply this to our lives. So, Lord, with that, let's be thankful for what shall we learn and then apply today and just have our spirit now to lead us at this time when we're together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, just a side note before we begin dissecting this particular text, that here in chapter 8, there's a little information, It's a load of information pertaining to this vision, but a bit of information for you to learn first is that here in chapter 8, the language of the original manuscripts refers back to Hebrew. You may be thinking, well, I thought all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew anyway, and that's absolutely true. But there's a certain part of Daniel that's written in Aramaic, which is chapters 2 through 7. We didn't read the course in Aramaic, but if you have an original manuscript, you would see it was written in Aramaic at that particular time. And in the chapter 8, it refers back to Hebrew throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. Now, there's no explanation given in the chapter 8 about why it refers back to Hebrew and why that change came about. But many students of the Word of God believe it simply because these last five chapters, 8 through 12, pertain to and relate directly to Israel. But just setting all that aside, yet it's informational, but setting aside that interesting aspect of the book of Daniel, we see from the text that Daniel is troubled. Go back to the beginning, he's troubled. He's having a second vision. He's had one, but now he's receiving a second. And it's explained to him, if you notice in verse 16, by a specific angel, you probably heard of him before, his name is Gabriel. Now, before elaborating, then, and explaining the vision, allow me to state the second vision has two primary objectives we need to understand, or two particular focal points. And the first one is this. The objective of chapter 8 is to convey to the reader that this is a separate and distinct vision from the first. The original manuscripts didn't have chapter divisions. We get the luxury of seeing how one stopped and another began. But here is also wanting to read and understand, okay, we're in the second vision, it is not the first. It's important to note that, especially since the two chapters have a lot of similarities. And because of similarities with the two chapters, it's important to observe that first of all, in chapter 7, is Belshazzar in his first year. In chapter 8, is Belshazzar still as a king, but in his third year. And that's not it's not speculative, it's actually mentioned in the first verse of each chapter that occurs in the first year of his reign, and in the third year, now in chapter 8. But interesting also is that both chapters use animals to symbolize kingdoms. If you were here last week or are familiar with chapter, chapter 7, you know that there were fantastic creatures described in chapter 7. There was the lion with wings, which was interesting, and You had the bear with three ribs in his mouth. And then you had, of course, the leopard, who also had wings attached to his back and his side. But here in chapter 8, yes, again, we have animals, but we don't have the fantastic creatures. Maybe here these are ugly as they were. Here we have typical animals. We have a ram, which we should be familiar with, and we have a goat, which we know what looks like. But also rather interestingly, between the two chapters, is they always have a feature of a little horn. But remember, they are distinct from one another. Which is why, then, the second objective exists. The second objective means to zoom in and provide specific details on the two kingdoms. The only two kingdoms mentioned in chapter 8 is the Medes and Persians as one kingdom, and then also then Greece as the second. So it's not the objective of the, the second objective of the chapter must ask ourselves, well, why then? Why would now God give Daniel a vision pertaining to only two kingdoms? He got off four in the beginning, but now he narrows the focus to just two kingdoms. The Medes and Persians being one, and now also Greece. So why should we narrow the vision and give Daniel more specific information to these two? And Dr. David Jeremiah's research shows this. The two kingdoms are singled out in Daniel 8 because they have special relevance for the Jewish people. The Middle Persia is significant because the Persian king allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild its walls and temple. Greece is relevant because during the period of history when that nation dominated, Jerusalem and the temple were besieged again after the death of Alexander. So, with that being the case, and now having to understand there's two particular objectives, let's go back to the text and begin to unravel now this vision. And we simply start with the identity of each the ram and the goat. Daniel has two primary animal comparisons, and we could be familiar with them the ram and the goat. The text identifies each. Verse 20 The ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram from here on is always going to represent the Medes and the Persians. And then verse 21 tells us the goat is the king of Greece. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. No speculation is necessary. It clearly tells us what's the meaning of each particular animal in chapter 8. But let us go beneath the surface here. Yeah, verse 20 tells us that ram is the Medes and Persians. Verse 21 says the goat is the Greece. But let us dig deeper for a moment and go further on each animal. And the first is the ram. In verse 3, which we didn't read, it says this. The ram is described as two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. What on earth does that mean? Verse 4. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. The item of significance here for a moment is a one horn, I mean, it's typical now for a ram to have two horns. You've seen a ram, they have two horns. Actually, you have two rams, they butt heads a lot of times together on their horns. So you've seen a ram, they have two horns. But here, it's item of significance is one horn was longer than the other. Now, remember here, the whole symbolism here is that the ram represents the Medes and Persians. So the two horns is representing one, the Medes, and the second, the Persians. It's important then to note, as it tells in the text, that they did not arise simultaneously. The longer one arose after or grew up later than the shorter one. This means then that the Persians joined the existing empire of the Medes, but grew to dominate the alliance. The Medes came first. They they're the ones that conquered Babylon, and the Persians then joined later. I mean, it tells us that in Daniel chapter 5, we find out that that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he's passed on and gave the kingship of the, of the Babylonian Empire to Belshazzar, and Belshazzar is overcome by the Medes. So the Medes arose first, and then later the Persians, and they rose so fast they overdominated. The fact of the Medes. Persians was more conquered than the conquerable than the Medes. Which makes sense because Cyrus was the one who actually released the Jews to go back to Jerusalem from Babylon in captivity. Now also notice then it mentions in verse 4 that the ram gored every beast that stood in its way, in the west, the north, and the south. By the way, these three particular directions correspond directly then to that bear who was mentioned in chapter 7 with the three ribs. The three ribs would be the bear representing the Medes and Persians, and then the fact it went west, north, and south. That's the ram. The ram represents the Medes and the Persians. But it's not just the ram in the chapter. Let's talk about the goat. Verses 6 through 8 tells us about the goat. In verse 5, it actually says Daniel saw the goat with a powerful single horn arise suddenly from the west. It says, without touching the ground, the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Observe the speed in which the the, the goat is traveling so fast that his feet did not hit the ground. The goat determined to destroy the two-horned ram when it were great rage furiously and broke the ram's two horns, which means then... The goat, representing Greece, overcome the Medes and Persians, conquered them, as the history has proved. Verse 6 states that the man, the goat, ran at him in his powerful wrath. I like the King James. that says the goat ran into him, the ram, in the fury of his power. Now, Daniel's vision also adds that no one could rescue the ram from his power, but the height of his power, his horn was broken and replaced by four small horns. Now, to explain what that means, then we have to go back once again and see in verse 21 that the goat is Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So the explanation then of what all that means is this. From the west, from Macedonia and Greece, in 334 B.C., Alexander the Great launched an unprovoked invasion. And within three years had decisively routed the Persian imperial forces. I mean, he totally conquered them. Alexander the Great. Now, in case you ever wondered or were curious why he's called or referred to as Alexander the Great, it is because of his exceptional ability to conquer. Greece, while being led by Alexander, conquered more nations at a faster rate than any other ancient king. It's remarkable. And in fact, people who study Alexander the Great admire the fact that he never lost a battle. He was some kind of military leader indeed. But despite his greatness or his success, he was still just a mere man, subject then to human illnesses. And at the height of his power, the height of the goat's power, his prominent horn was broken off, I meaning that Alexander the Great died of a sudden fever in Babylon in 323, at the age of 33. Now, some people also add or speculate that he was poisoned, not just died of a serious illness and the fever. But the significance of all that, as you look at chapter 8, with things unfolding, provides a point for us. Because everything is proving to be exactly as it had written and prophesied to Daniel. So here's the first point. The history, with all the things we've already said, as confusing still as it may be, it's all been proven The history verifies the exactness of the Bible. It just does. Now back in 2017, you may have heard that there was a special one-night showing of a movie. Is actually a documentary that was called Is Genesis History. Note the title, it's kind of leading, Is Genesis History. And of course, we look upon the book of Genesis absolutely positively as history. It is history of the beginning of creation the first sin, the first man, the first woman, the 12 tribes of Israel, all the way through Abraham. And while it's history, it is exact. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of theories on the way in which the world was created. But we should make no mistake. The Bible records the history of the first man, the first woman, the beginning of all things. Genesis equals beginnings. Yes, it's absolute. It is history. Now, as we think about that along these same lines, i also tell you that there's been a Jewish historian called Josephus who's also written a lot of information that is helpful to be able to make sure that history has, that we've learned a lot from happened with things in Jewish history. I mean, in fact, many have jo- relied on Josephus for the last 2,000 years to know certain information pertaining to Christianity. But with Josephus writing the antiquities of the Jews, it just helped prove the fact that the history verifies the exactness of the Bible. And the book of Daniel, then, is a perfect example. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Daniel is so accurate to the rise and fall of kingdoms. Liberal, liberal critical scholars argue that Daniel was written after the events unfolded. But it just all demonstrates, we should all think about that, and you see, that just demonstrates that God is in control of everything. We often doubt that. You see things unfold in the world today, thinking God's no longer in control. But God was in control then, and he still is today. God is in control. The book of Daniel is a perfect illustration of that. He was back then, and he still is today. God is in control. But getting back to the text, note it was the death of Alexander the Great. The empire that he had was built and was folded into two parts, the four parts. Is indicated by verse eight. In verse eight it says the goat, which was Greece and Alexander the Great predominantly, became a seemingly great when he was strong. The great horn was broken. Remember, he had the illness or someone poisoned him. He died instead of there being instead of that came up the four conspicuous horns. The four horns referred to here in chapter eight, verse eight, reflected a fourfold division of Alexander's empire following his death. Now, historians noted that for 20 years after his death, it appeared this portion of Daniel's vision would, be, would not be fulfilled. But eventually the empire was divided accordingly with four different generals, which then led to verse 9. Out of them four generals, one of them, the four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. What could that mean? The little horn talked about in Daniel chapter 8 with the fall of Alexander the Great and these four generals was known and represented by Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have heard of him before, you may have not. But he was a Syrian ruler who opposed God's people and desecrated the temple. He became a great persecutor of the people of Israel. In fact, J. Vernon McGee in his commentary refers to Antiochus Epiphanes as the Nero of the Jewish world, and Nero hated Christians. If you ever heard anything about Nero, me talk about it, or read anything about Nero, you know that he was a hater of anybody had anything to do with Jesus. In fact, it's often found where Nero would take Christians, capture them, put them to stake, and burn them alive. That's how wicked Nero was. But Antiochus Epiphanes is just like him in that particular day. One commentary added that he said himself in the office of Epiphanes as Israel's king, called himself the prince of the host. He compelled the nation to worship him as suggested by the fact he prohibited Israel from following her religious practices and desecrated the temple. The nation Israel acceded to this individual's wishes because of his rebellious attitude. He prospered and so despised the truth contained in God's word and the truth was said to be thrown to the ground. Can you imagine the Bible just simply being discarded and thrown to the ground? The word of truth as we know it. I mean, there may come a day when we no longer can actually have this in our possession. Countries now today in the world cannot have the Bible or be caught with it. But can you imagine if someone want to despise the Bible so, so much that they would just actually just throw it to the ground? Do you think we're there yet? Will people just quickly discard the Word of God and just kind of throw it away into the trash? I think I shared with you before, some of you are new, may not have heard that when I was in seminary, in a preaching class, we had to all of us give a different preach, uh, preach a particular part of the, of the Bible. And I'll never forget, in one particular preaching class, one of the students come to me, or actually told all of us watching him deliver the Word, that he had been studying the Word of God at at, at Taco Bell, preparing for a sermon, tuning everything out, preparing, reading the Bible, preparing for the sermon that he would deliver to us later. And all of a sudden, a great illustration provided to him because he watched someone who also was there on the seminary campus at the Taco Bell left their Bible on the table. And walked out of the store. The Bible's still on the table. So he watched one of the employees at Taco Bell go pick up the Bible, walked around kind of casually, asked a few patrons in there if it happened to be theirs. It was not theirs. So he eventually took the Bible that he found laying on the table and walked over and threw it in the trash can. So I asked you, are we there yet? And if we're not there yet, we're quickly approaching this day where people just simply discard the Word of God. Anything but absolute truth. Daniel's vision was of Antiochus Epiphanes, who some say was the forerunner of the Antichrist, but of course a lot of people have said that and it didn't prove to be, of how he greatly despised Jewish people, as did Hitler, and then threw away the Word of God. It certainly, as we think about it, is indicative of things to come in due time. So then as we elaborate then upon the vision, this meaning, I also notice how a few peculiar things begin to stand out in chapter 8, which really doesn't quite make sense necessarily like the first. Dan's request of a meaning of the vision. In verses 15 to 16, again, Daniel's troubled, and Gabriel comes to him to tell him the meaning of the vision he saw in the first 14 verses of the chapter. And we're requesting meaning of a dream and vision means he did not understand it. And, and that may not seem peculiar to you because we have all kinds of dreams. I have them constantly where I have a dream, and I simply do not understand it. And we're like for someone to come and say, Kurt, what does that mean? And explain it to me. So there's all kinds of dreams and visions we have that is not interpreted. But Daniel has one, and it's peculiar to me that he cannot understand it. Because he has been the provider of dreams earlier in this book. He told Nebuchadnezzar his dream. In fact, he told him of two of them. Then he told Belshazzar the to meaning of the handwriting on the wall. So it's interesting, because Daniel has previously been the one to explain visions, that he didn't understand this one. Recall earlier book he had simply told the others what it meant when they had the vision. And I thought about it. And I thought this peculiar item points to an application that we only know what God wants us to know. Daniel received information from the vision the very first time in Nebuchadnezzar from God. And here he doesn't understand it. So Gabriel explains it to him. But nonetheless, he only knows what God wants him to know. And countless times, we can have claim. If you're like me, you're not necessarily always understanding what everybody's telling you. But still, that don't mean that we can't have understanding and insight and that we're smart, intelligent people. I mean, we can claim to have some sort of superior wisdom or knowledge. Others may be more than others. But ultimately, we still only know what God wants us to know. If you ever need any proof, think of all the times that anybody's ever told you when the world will come to an end when Jesus Christ will come back now all kinds of people who try to prophesy when Jesus would return they've been wrong every time they've been wrong because they still not come back so it's proof that God does not want us to know everything and he will tell us then the due time and the fact also is this then none of us know what tomorrow will bring now listen to me Tomorrow could be our last. Or it could be the beginning of something new. Or tomorrow may bring the return of Christ. The second coming. And that would certainly be a day in which a believer would rejoice and should not fear. But maybe here's the point. If tomorrow doesn't bring the end and only brought your end, would you have been prepared for that day? That's a pretty gloomy thought. But if tomorrow brings your end, not the end, it's not the day Christ comes back, but it's the last day you have, the last breath you take. Would you be prepared? Because there's only one or two places you can go. I mean, the angels will come and deliver you to heaven. Your soul gets transported to heaven. Or you simply gets transported to hell. So there's only two places. And if today is the last, we hate to even think about that. We're kind of forced to do it. If today was the end, your last breath, where would you be? Are you prepared? Now we'll come back to that in just a moment, but let's point out one more thing about the peculiar item. That's the second peculiar item about Daniel. As if he hectic, he couldn't understand it. The third is this then his reaction. Notice Daniel's reaction. He's had this wonderful vision now, the second, and now he's had a reaction, and he gets sick. Look at verse 26. The vision, the evenings, the mornings have been told the truth, but he's told seal up the vision. It refers to him many days from now. And then verse 27, his reaction. Daniel, I was overcome and lay sick for days. Now, for hours, he lay sick for some days. Daniel is simply sick to his stomach for what he has seen in this vision. I mean, sick. I mean, Daniel was completely overcome, like exhausted and ill, but the interpretation of what he received from Gabriel pertaining to the vision. And for several days, it indicates that he was unable to carry on his official business. I mean, have you ever been so sick for days that you could not function? You may have known people who had COVID or cancer or anything pertaining to serious illness where they could not function for several days. Earlier this year, I had pneumonia. But even during the time I had pneumonia, I could still do some things. I didn't go to work because I mean I just couldn't work at the time, but I could still get up out of bed. I could still look at the Bible. I could read. I could do some things still. Have you ever been so sick, where you've been sick for days or weeks? This is kind of what we picture of Daniel. We ask ourselves, why is why is Daniel so sick? Why is he unable to carry on? Because simply he has seen somehow a vision given to him by God and regarding the wrath that would come, and the awful events that would unfold as a time designated by God. He's saying these things. It makes him sick. Maybe we need to ask ourselves: so, well, how would you feel if you received such a vision of great wrath from God? If God bestowed upon you as you were sleeping, or in a vision you received somehow a great wrath upon the people you love, how would you feel? And they go, oh, ain't no big deal. I could really handle that. I mean, could you really handle that? I remember as our children was younger, that when I had a dream one particular night, I can't remember which child it was of mine at a particular time, but one of the children, I've been watching some war movies, I think, so one of the children actually jumped on a grenade and died in my dream. I immediately woke up, and I went to the bedroom and make sure they were still okay. And I couldn't go back to sleep for hours. So if you received a dream, if you received some, somehow you get a vision of some great wrath, how would it affect you? You might be just like Daniel. You might be sick for days, unable to function. Or I got thinking, maybe, maybe dismiss that question. Maybe another question, maybe another question. How would you feel if God somehow transported you to heaven for just ten minutes? I mean, people claim that's happened before. Don't read everything you don't believe everything you read. But how would you feel if God somehow transported you to heaven for just ten minutes? Now, I mean, in His presence, by His side, on the throne for ten minutes. I mean, there's God. There's you. No, you're always at the right hand side, right, where Jesus is. But what if you're there with God for ten minutes? Maybe Jesus said, "Don't get on my side. Go to the left." So you're standing over here, then, okay? But you're somehow in heaven for ten minutes. How would you feel? It could be a scary thought, or it could be immensely joyful. And for some of us, might think, "Well, dude, I'm gonna stop dead in my tracks if that happens." How would you feel? If somehow God transported you to heaven and you're with him in his presence. If somehow you're pondering the question, looking for an answer, let me tell you, the answer, whether you're scared or joyful, here's the real answer. That you would have felt like everything in your life has changed. Everything in your life would have changed. but hasn't it already? Hasn't everything in your life already changed? Everything should have changed in your life the very second you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Has it changed? Or are you still the same sinful person you were before Christ? are you still that unregenerate, unrepentant sinner you always were? Or have you truly changed? Remember earlier I said we come back to this second peculiar item related to the time of the end and how I mentioned we come back to it. Well, here we come back to it. Because now with that thought in mind, we ask ourselves again, are we prepared for such a time as tomorrow? Are we prepared for tomorrow if it would be our end? I hate to say that. I hate to even speculate that. I hate to even say those words. I hate to even think about that. But are you prepared for tomorrow if it would be your last? Because the fact is, we have to be. We need to be. As Sheil said to the kids earlier, is just one way to get you to see Jesus. It's only through Jesus. The way to get to heaven is only through Jesus. It is not Jesus plus some works. You can't do enough of good works to get to heaven. It's only through Jesus. Only. And the day you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, should have changed your life completely to the point where people didn't even recognize who you were before. So today, we find some application. And it's Daniel's second vision. We've unraveled some things. It's been informational. We've learned. We've also seen how we today do not know anything of what God wants us to know. And we do not know about tomorrow. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. So today, we get ourselves right with God. And we know that we know that a shepherd of happiness tomorrow that will be the Father. We'll see Jesus. Father, we thank you for this message today of how we can begin to understand things that seem clearly confusing in the book of Daniel, and how we then can unravel some of these things with the help of scholars to maybe understand what it's referring to. Lord, ultimately, right now, we're also thankful for the fact that we can, we can today, Lord, put ourselves right with you through your son, Jesus. So Lord, right now I pray for all of us collectively, collectively together that if somehow, some way we were not right with you we came in today carrying some baggage, carrying some sin, carrying something, Lord, that we just repetitiously do over and over again. It's a day we recognize that while we don't have the power, we can actually submit ourselves to you and say, Jesus, you'll take this from me. You took my sin. So today I'm going to... Re- Make myself right with you. And maybe for the first time accept you into my life. What a glorious day that should be. For anybody who has never seen Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today can be a glorious day for you. So Lord, we thank you for today of how this message really didn't reveal that necessarily at the beginning, but how we can pull that from it. So today, Lord. I pray for all of us that we position ourselves right before you and recognize us only through Jesus. Let's be thankful for him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.